Hey, it's Sarah. That's What She Said is presented by Coors Light, the beer made to chill. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Fantasy Focus Football is back weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Matthew Barry, Field Yates, Stefania Bell, and Mike Clay are here to help you dominate your fantasy league this season. Watch the show on YouTube, Twitter, or the ESPN app, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to draft your team, compete with your friends, and take home the crown by signing up now at ESPN.com slash fantasy football today. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. My name is Tatiana McFadden, and my dilemma is I am running out of TV shows to watch. Oh, come on, Tatiana. To paraphrase uh, Ferris Bueller to a sick Cameron in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you're not out of TV shows. You just can't think of anything good to watch. I know you once you get through sort of the obvious picks right now, it might feel like you're out of options, but it's literally not possible to run out of TV shows right now. There's never been more. There's too many. I'll never get to all of them. First of all, you can obviously see current stuff, but you can go back to like the old gems that you might have missed the first time around. They're everywhere. I'm talking Murder, She Wrote, Moonlighting, Golden Girls, Arrested Development, The Wire, all sorts of shows that I guarantee you haven't seen all of them. Go find some of those guilty pleasures of your youth, you know, Gilmore Girls and My So-Called Life and Allie McBeal. If you want only current ones, every single show by Mike Schur is fantastic, so find all of his. I May Destroy You is great. Shit's Creek, of course. I'm Sorry is hilarious. If you didn't see the quick run of a couple seasons of Odd Mom Out, that is fantastic. You should go watch it. I guarantee you've already seen Fleabag, because if you haven't seen Fleabag and you're still saying you ran out of shows, then honestly, shame on you. I mean, I could really do this all night. I could keep labeling, you know, lists and and, and genres and kinds of shows, but just do some solid Googling, you know, find a critic or a list maker or even just go to your Netflix and they'll suggest them based on the ones you like. Um, And just, you know, hop on anything you haven't seen yet. I'd tell you to go outside and get some fresh air and some exercise instead of watching so much TV. But I think you got that covered. The commish has spoken. My guest is Tatiana McFadden, a Paralympic athlete who's won 23 major marathons and 17 Paralympic medals in multiple summer Paralympic Games. She works also as a national advocate for equal access for people with disabilities. She's a lifetime member of the Girl Scouts, is on the board of directors of Spina Bifida of Illinois, speaks to children and adults about healthy living. She is the first and only athlete to win Boston, London, Chicago, and New York marathons in one year, and she did it three years in a row. Her story is fascinating. Her accomplishments are staggering. Uh, we got into a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, her story of growing up in, in Russia in, a, in an orphanage uh, with the congenital disorder that paralyzed her from the waist down. She walked on her hands for the first six years of her life. And then she was adopted, grew up with two moms in Baltimore, early on started fighting to race alongside able-bodied runner, runners in high school, and then and then worked to make things better for runners with disabilities across all levels. Then she became a marathon runner, a Paralympic superstar. We talk about how she had to change a tire mid-race a couple times, uh, work in the catwalk on Project Runway, setting world records, all sorts of stuff. She's incredibly inspiring and interesting. I think you're going to like this. That's what she said. So I've known of Tatiana McFadden for years, but was particularly 
uh, impressed and became a huge fan after an ESPNW summit a couple years ago. And I don't know if you remember what year that was, Tatiana, that you were on a panel telling your story. Um, I can't remember if it was maybe 2016. Yeah. Okay. So 2015. Um, 16 or 15. I can't remember. I think it was 16. And I, uh, I started following you on Twitter and just like following along with everything you did. Uh, your story is incredible and amazing and you're such an inspiration and I'm so glad you're here to have uh, more people who maybe don't know about it um, and haven't seen you on Ellen and everywhere else uh, to hear about it. So let's start way back when, and I think probably more than any person on this podcast you I've ever had on this podcast, you probably spend more time talking about the first six years of your life than anyone I've ever spoken to. <laughs> it's every it's every interview, I'm guessing. Maybe. Maybe. My casualties of growing up were probably a little little different compared right. to, to most. So yes. So let's talk about it. Uh, born in Russia, and um, kind of explain the circumstances that landed you um, in a in an orphanage, and also for, for the first six years of your life without uh, without a wheelchair. Yes, so you know, I I grew up. I didn't have a typical childhood for the first six years of my life. I was born in St. Petersburg, Russia, at the time of fall of communism in '89. So just you know, not, not a '90s baby, but just. <laughs> it. And so it was a different time in Russia. And I was born with spina bifida. So that's where you have a hole in your back and your spinal column is sticking out. And usually you get surgery, you know, immediately after birth. But for me, that wasn't the case. I had to wait 21 days to get that operation. So it was practically a miracle that I survived and lived through those conditions. And Shortly after that, you know, my birth mom circumstances, she could not afford to take care of me. You know, it was a it was a disabled child and you know the the turnover of Russia was quite different. And so she did the best thing that she could do and put me in an orphanage and hoping that, you know, I would be adopted and that, you know, I would be all right. And so I lived there for the first six years. I didn't have a wheelchair available. There was no medical treatment. There was no schooling. So no doctor's appointment. You know, I didn't get all those baby shots that a typical, you know, child that would child would get. So um, but I think it kind of set my attitude and my beliefs that are I have so strongly now and, and today. I think growing up, you know, without a wheelchair, I had to kind of figure out how I wanted to get around and how I wanted to be with all the other kids. And so I think I've always learned how to problem solve. And I've always thought myself as someone who wasn't any different. Um, and so I think that carried just really well to what I'm, I'm doing today. But yeah, the six year changed when my mom uh, came and she was on a work trip purely. And so she visited my orphanage and yeah, it was like love at first sight. And she was there. So she ran an um, adoption agency at the time, ICA. And um, so she was trying to place kids into American families. And that's how we met and everything changed coming to the U.S. I mean, yeah. I had 
Wait, let's go back quick because I wanted to ask quickly. So um, you were paralyzed from the waist down and the wheelchair that you normally would have had was too expensive for the orphanage. So you walked on your hands for the first six years. So not only did it sort of set you on this path of self-determination, but physically you realized the power of, of your functioning arms. Yeah, you know, exactly. I I realized like that was my myself was my mode of transportation you know it's a it was expensive you know they didn't really believe in getting you know medical equipment it wasn't you know (laughs) it it wasn't like uh you know people with disabilities in russia you're not at that time you weren't really you know disabled people weren't accounted for so you couldn't get medical equipment it just wasn't a thing and so um yeah so that's how I got around was scooting on the floor or walking on my arms or scooting on the floor again. And exactly. A lot of people are like, Oh, my coach is like, that's how you built the muscle mass in your arms. And I was like, maybe, yeah, maybe it was, (laughs) yeah, the survival rate. So yeah, that's exactly, that's how I just, Kind of did it. And were you old enough? Because you know your 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 mother arrived visiting Russia, um, uh, as you mentioned, as a commissioner of disabilities for the U.S. Health Department. Um, but before she chose you, were you old enough to worry about being picked by a family? Were you old enough to recognize I'm different, and that might make it harder for a family to want to adopt me? I think so. I was, you know, all of my at the time, my friends were being adopted, and so, you know, you. Um, it kind of became like a, it's so sad to say, but it just kind of came to like a routine. You know, you always, you knew people were always coming in and out and looking at like healthier children and, um, children, you know, that could walk or babies that were really, really healthy. And that really so much of the kids that were, you know, malnutrition, like had malnutrition or had a disability. So it just, it kind of became a, a routine, but you know, it just, it just kind of just went on, on living. Um, and, and in hoping that, you know, I would be adopted. Yeah. Um, so, so she shows up and how does she decide that, that you're the one? We just kind of looked at each other and uh, it was just like faith, you know, like love at first sight. I just knew like in, in my heart that this was it. Like it's, you know, kind of like picking a, a partner, you know, <laughs> like you just right. like love at first, you know, you're like, yeah. this is it. Um, and so like I, I knew immediately and I think she knew, as well. Um, and I went around telling the orphanage director and, uh, everybody there that, you know, that's my mom. And they thought I was like crazy. And they're like, no, how do you know? And then, you know, she's not, you know, uh, going to be your mom. And before I knew it, I was adopted and, and on the plane and, and ready to go. And, uh, but she had to head back to the U S first to get my adoption paperwork started. So when she left that kind of, made me a little worried that she wouldn't come back, but yeah. back. Yeah. So you end up in Baltimore, very mm-hmm. different place. Oh, and, yeah. um, your mom and her partner, Bridget. So you had two moms and that's, uh, that's unique too for, for, I would say for what is this early nineties, I would imagine. Yes, it was. Uh, so at the time only one person could adopt as a, you know, for, um, 
for for a couple like that. So for like a lesbian couple or any gay couple, one person is only allowed to legally adopt until recently. Um, actually, until you know Obama passed the law for kids and adoption. But yeah, it's um, she was the time she was allowed. Uh, so Debbie, you know, legally um, adopted me. But I mean, I knew that you know Bridget was uh, my mom as well. But yeah, it's crazy to think that um, during that time that all that's happened. But yeah, the strongest and greatest parents on earth. And they yeah. put a local sports program and um, they knew that that was the best thing for me to get healthy and to, you know, live independently and, and get strong. And, um, and they were absolutely right. You know, they, um, they drove me every single weekend to a local para sports club where I tried several different sports and they sat there for four hours, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and watched me play sports. Wow. And, and that's when I fell in love with wheelchair racing. I mean, I just really took to it. I loved it. It was something I could do grow individually as, and it was, you know, it was fast. It was exciting. Um, I was getting stronger in it. And, you know, I, you know, when I came to the U S a lot of people asked, Oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be? And I was like, I don't know. You know, it was, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to be because I didn't, you know, I wasn't strong enough mentally or physically to, you know, have those dreams and goals. And until I started sports and uh, I loved wheelchair racing so much, I told my parents, I said, I know what I want to be when I grow up. And they said, why? And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go to the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> At the age of like 14 and a half. And they were like, oh, <laughs> Really? I was like, yes, I want to find out where trials are. I love it. I love like racing and I love it so much. And so, um, you know, they, they never thought my dreams were, you know, too big. And so they said, okay, we'll find out where trials are going to be and, um, we'll take you. And, you know, at the time I said the Olympics because Paralympics wasn't mainstream in the media. It wasn't on TV. We didn't have all the social outlets that we had. And so, or the T it wasn't on TV either. So it wasn't never talked about disability during that time. Wasn't really talked about, or, you know, it's, we still have that problem, you know, in the, in the United States where it needs to be mainstreamed more. It needs to be seen on TV uh, because people think that, you know, disability is such a, a taboo and we have to be so hush hush about it, but, you know, and um, it, it's it's our norm and it should be a norm right. um, in the United States because millions of people are disabled and m- a couple more millions have a hidden disability, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think it's the more we talk about it and the more it's mainstreamed. And if we can do it through sports, then I feel like it can trickle down to, you know, people applying for, for jobs and making um, accessibility better in the United yeah, for States. Sure. So, so yeah. your, your moms seem to know that by being willing to sacrifice all of their weekends for your sports. And, um, so in, in high school, were you able to compete across different places before, uh, deciding to continue competing while at U of I? So in high school, um, in high school, I was actually denied to, uh, race alongside of other runners um, during that time. And so I actually had a, a high school lawsuit for, for no damages, um, f- but to fight for the right for people with disabilities to participate in high school sports. 
um, you know, after the games, <laughs> that's all I wanted to do. And they wouldn't give me a uniform. They told me I can go run with my own kind that I had a sports program that was for myself. And so I thought to myself, wow, we're in the 21st century and this is how I'm being treated as a disabled person in high school. I'm, I'm being discriminated and, um, and that's not okay. And my sister, Hannah, she's also a Paralympic athlete and she loves track. And so I thought, well, if I am being denied to compete, um, then, you know, what will it look like for her? And, that's what we were teaching kids when I was in high school, that it was okay to discriminate someone with a disability and that it's okay not to have them to be part of the track team. And I thought this is not okay. So, you know, my mom has such a powerful background and I said, you know, as commissioner of disability, I said, what can we do? And she said, you know, the only thing that we can do is sue. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, we'll, will sue for no money to make that statement <laughs> a loud, loud statement. And so um, it was the hardest thing to do as, as a high schooler to fight for equal rights. Um, but I'm so happy that I did it. Um, and it transformed the world that I never thought it would. And um, several steps has happened going through, you know, the process of Maryland first and then the, um, then the whole state, uh, sorry, the county first, then then the whole state. And then um, with former President Obama, we worked on it being federal law when I was actually in college. Wow, so, that's college. amazing. Yeah, your first lawsuit is, is credited for eventually getting through the Maryland Fitness and Athletics Equity for Students with Disabilities Act so that um, other students like you wouldn't be uh, required to race alone. Um, or not be on teams alongside uh, their able-bodied peers. So that's that's massively uh, successful already at such a young age to be on the, on the forefront of that stuff. Um, so you you must have had a significant success if you went on to uh, University of Illinois, where you studied human development and family studies, and you were on the the wheelchair basketball team there. Um, but before you even got there, you were competing in the Paralympics in Athens. Uh, the youngest member of Team USA. To what do you attribute your ability at just 15 to to be able to compete internationally like that? I loved it. I was kind of like the wild child on the track. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked it. I just, it, it felt like freedom to me. I felt equal. Um, it's just something I really, really, really loved. And what was your um, event, your best event? At the time, yeah, it was the hundred, the two hundred, and the four hundred. Okay, sprinter. The sprinter, yeah, I came from a, a sprinting background, and each games I've added on an event because I finally became strong enough. Um, so it's been now I'm up to six events on the track, but yeah, so I started barely qualifying for in Athens. I qualified for the one, the two, and the four. I didn't make it in the final in the four. And then in Beijing, I did the one, two, four, and eight. Um, didn't make it into the finals in the eight. So it's all been, you know, it's all been quite uh, quite an amazing journey. So yeah, um, to, add, to add on each game, like each event in each game. I had a friend um, who competed at the Athens Olympics in pole vault, and I'm still bummed that I didn't make the trip because I was just like, oh. I was a poor, like right out of college. Oh. Um, 
And now I think back and to, to be in Greece, like the birthplace, what was that like at just at just 15 to, to be, you know, in this place and competing and seeing people from all over the world uh, competing against you? It was my very first international experience. And um, I was nervous. I was very, I was excited, but I was, yeah, you know, I didn't know the whole process. I didn't know I had, I was just learning how to get a routine down as an elite athlete. And so I, I was, you know, being that young, I was, you go through a lot during that stage, you know, you're still um, going through puberty, you're learning about diet, you know, you're training on top of that, you're traveling, um, so with boys or girls, one or the other, maybe <laughs> both. And there's, there's, there's ones from all over the world now <laughs> that are right near no, you. No time, no, no time for, no time for boys at the time, but, <laughs> you know, it's just like, um, but you're, you're just, you know, you're, uh, you're learning. And so it was, um, and to go compete, you know, at that international level and you're learning about your racing equipment and, you know, what to do on the track and how to prepare for an event. A lot of mistakes were, of course, made because you must, you know, sometimes I forgot some things to put in my bag. And so you just, you learn all of that. Sadly, I learned it in Athens um, being my first, you know, international competition. Um, and so, but also I learned uh you know, I think being on that podium, I learned that this is what I really, really love to do. And what kind of got me actually was two things. One was the Paralympics wasn't as well known. So the stadium wasn't filled. Um, and then when we got back to the U.S., it was like no one knew what just happened. No one yeah. knew Olympics. And you had so just I, done this huge thing and you came back and yeah, exactly. Feel so like I, it had happened. Yeah. So I kind of felt like, oh, it wasn't a big deal that I went, you know, at the age of 15. And I thought to myself, this isn't how we should be feeling. You know, it's, this is a world stage event and I don't want to feel like this. So I knew that I need to be the best. I knew that I needed to win every single race. I knew that I needed to test myself. I knew that I needed to be, you know, I wanted to be, you know, the image for, for track and field to, to push the sport and say, Hey, it's much more than what you think it is. And it's about the whole education process of Paralympics of wheelchair racing and what it actually is. And, you know, to talk about a disability in there as well. I think people were, you know, they didn't know what it, you know, what it is. And um, so it's about teaching and showing how exciting it really is. And so that's part of my job, right? Not only to do these races, but also to be a teacher to society and to, to be an advocate for it. Um, you know, I had a great person, Chantelle Petticler. She's a Paralympic athlete, you know, in Canada, and she did an amazing advocacy job for, you know, for her country. And now, you know, they have amazing, you know, um, things that they're doing for their Canadian, you know, Paralympic team. And they've even gotten trials down at the same place at the same time. And so, you know, we'll get there one day, but it's just, you know, teaching and and educating. Um, So I knew that 
at that young age that that's what I needed needed to do. So you start competing at the Paralympics. Like I said, you end up at U of I and you're still racing then. You're competing all over. Would you say your college experience was fairly normal or was it often interrupted by going to compete um, and by, you know, your your sort of international efforts? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't really normal, I guess. Um, I was taking like a full load and I started marathoning actually in 2009. So it was also leaving for marathons um, and training for world championships and getting ready for the games. So, yeah, but I made, you know, I, I of course I, I made friends and class kept me really busy, which was really, really nice, especially after training, you know, stressful trainings or stressful competitions. It was nice to have, you know, an outlook and, um, and I love studying what I studied. Um, I actually studied child life, working with um, critically ill children in hospital settings. And in, when I went to grad school, I also did my internships where I worked 600 hours as well as training and competing and um, getting that hospital experience in as well. But it was, I wanted to do that because, you know, it was another way of giving back and teaching society Yes, people with disabilities can actually live a very much normal life. They can go to school and, you know, they can travel the world and they can have jobs. And, you know, life isn't about what's missing. It's what you do with the gifts that you're given. So I liked interning because it also gave me that alternative, you know, um, viewpoint on, on everything. So I had a very busy yeah I'm curious both at the high school level and collegiately um you seem like a very outgoing person very fearless you've obviously a- accomplished a lot and been willing to fight from a young age on for for you know equal treatment and opportunity did you ever find yourself in situations socially or otherwise where you where you were shy to start or where people didn't treat you well um, or were you, were you able to make spaces at, at all the schools? Cause young people are the worst and being different uh, feels like such a bad thing when you're growing up and then you get older and you're like, you know, so many of the things you were insecure about actually make you really cool and interesting and different. But I wonder if, if there were moments of struggle, uh, especially in school. High school was the hardest for me because um, going through that lawsuit you know, it was amazing to see what friends stuck with you and what friends, you know, kind of left you during that time period, because it was like, I was always in the newspaper, you know, I, I had to switch, I had to switch from the, you know, the cross country team to the sprinting group, because, um, you know, (laughs) I was bullied all the time, because they just, they didn't understand, you know, what the whole meaning of this was. And, you know, I, I didn't want attention like it happened. You know, I, I just wanted to fight for equality rights for people with disabilities. And there was another um, gentleman from another high school who had CP and the high school kept turning him down because, you know, they wouldn't, they didn't want a CP athlete to be training on their track. And so he lost that social experience for the first three years of his high school experience. And that's not what it should be. And that's not okay to tell students, you know, during that time, it's okay to like, you know, put somebody down, you know, with a disability or on. And so I think that I was, 
always, you know, at track meets, it was bullied and at practices, I was even at school, I was bullied. So there was countless times where you, know, you come home and you're upset and then you're like thinking, well, <laughs> am I doing the right thing? Am I, you know, how much longer can I hold on till this lawsuit is over? You know, I just, yeah, it was really hard to go through that at the age of 15. And uh, because, you know, a lot, you don't, un a lot of people don't understand at the time, you know, high schoolers are high schoolers, yeah. you know, they, they have that global Asshole. experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They don't have that global experience or they don't have that, you know, understanding really. So I was, I think I was so advanced for a high schooler. So when I got to college, I was like, yes, <laughs> I can hang out with like, you know, smart people. And so it was, that was the hardest time. I think, I think that was the first time that I thought, man, <laughs> you know, I, it really made me learn to hang in there and to continue to, um, fight for, for equality. I mean, even today, you know, it's, um, I can only hope that I'm making change at every race or at every marathon that I go to or um, every speaking engagement that I have. And I, you know, I just hope that I'm doing all that I can for our sport, for the generation, for the next generation to come on. And, yeah. um, you know, you can only just hope and I love what I do. And so, yeah, it's, um, it's been challenging, but it's been a really, really good ride. And um, it's been really rewarding watching my sister when she went to high school and no one treated her differently because she didn't have to fight for to be on the high school track team. So she actually had a lot of friends on the track team. They all thought it was really normal for her to be on the team. You know, so that part made me really, really happy. Right, you get to see sort of the the path that you created be much more open for the people coming after. When when you got to college, was it was it easier? I know um, I saw you were in a sorority. Um, you obviously, like you said, were extremely busy. But um, was it easier to find that acceptance? Did it feel like people had aged into understanding and accepting differences better? It was a lot better. Yeah. I made, luckily, you know, I made a lot of friends like in my sorority, I wanted to make friends, you know, outside my sport. Um, I think, you know, our college was still um, learning about, you know, wheel, the whole wheelchair racing program, the whole basketball program. Um, so I think there was still education needed, you know, at, at the university. Um, but it's, so much better now. Um, and it got better every year that I was there. So, you know, I don't know if it was because U of I was crushing, you know, marathon, uh, right. marathons. And so our track team kind of became, you know, a little legacy there. Um, and like breeders of like Olympic and world championship and marathon. So, um, that all really kind of, um, it really changed every year. And I think just keep posting about it and talking about it. And I, our school's always in the news. And so um, they became really proud. So that education yeah. process actually happened. Well, quite people love a winner. People love a winner. And if you get, if you make U of I famous for being a winner, then they're going to love that too. Um, so you, you mentioned you started out sort of specializing in shorter distances in sprints mm -hmm. across Paralympic events. 
And then you decided to do the marathon in 2009. So what was it that had you thinking, you know, and, and you're what, 20 at that point? So you're still in college. Um, what made you think, I want to try 26 plus miles? Oh, it wasn't me. It was my coach. <laughs> so he was like, Tatiana, let me like, let's talk, you know, about your, you know, future racing plan. He was like, I think you're, he's like, you, people will know you for the marathons. And I was like, that's so funny. I was like, I don't think so. I, <laughs> I was like, I'm a track athlete. And he was like, no, he was like, I think you should really, he, he's like, I, you should try one marathon. And I was like, uh, you want me to do 26.2 miles. Right? <laughs> and he was like, absolutely. He was like, your favorite event is the 400 meters. Just think about doing the 400 meters a hundred times or so. Just keep counting in your head. And you have finished the marathon. And I was like, absolutely. Just that easy. <laughs> Just that easy. And he was like, it'll be really good. Like Chicago is such a great marathon. People like love it that we come down from our university. And I was like, I was like, fine. Chicago's flat. I'll do it. And so, uh, it took me a whole, yikes. It took me like a whole year to train for one. And, um, I was on the struggle bus for a long time. I had to like turn around at like eight miles and then turn and then I slowly made it to like 16. And then I was like, okay, I gotta go home. And then, so then I worked my miles up and then, um, I was able to like make it to like 22 miles without like passing out. So, <laughs> it was like quite a journey. And I told my mom, I was like, okay, surprise. I'm going to be running the marathon Chicago. I was like, would love it if you can come support me because I may not make it through. And she was like, okay. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just like, well, I'm going to hang in as long as possible. And so I hung in for quite a while. I hung in at the halfway point and I was like, okay, I still feel really good. And I hung in all the way until the uh, 20 miles. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm still here within this top <laughs> seven. And so when it came down to um, – mile 24 and 25, I looked at my teammate, Amanda, and I was like, Amanda, we're doing really well. What are we going to do? <laughs> and she was like, well, we need to like work our way up to the front and then just sprint. And so I was like, all right. So we made like the last turn, we climbed that hill and we just sprinted to the finish. And um, my mom was like, they made an announcement that the women's field was coming through. So she was like reaching down for her camera. She was like, I'm going to like find my camera. And she missed me finished because she didn't think that I would be like in, in, first. in first place. <laughs> and so the lady next to her, she's like, um, you were describing me your daughter. And I think she just like won the marathon <laughs> after that finish. Um, insane. Yeah. So that was really well, good luck not being able, making it a one and done after you win. I mean, after that, now it's just a requirement that you keep going because you won the first one you were ever in. Um, yeah. So crazy. you've, I mean, you've won Chicago, New York, London, Boston. Um, you said 23 total marathons you've won now? Yes. 
Yeah. That's insane. What do your arms feel like in your shoulders the next day or the next month or the next year after that? Yeah. I, after, so I'm the first athlete and the only athlete to win, um, Boston, London, Chicago, New York, uh, all four in one year. But then I repeated that three more times. Um, yeah. So I'm still the only athlete to ever do that male or female. Boston, London, Chicago, and New York in the same. Mm -hmm. Oh my years in a row. Yeah. Um, my arms and back really hurt. Like after a marathon, I can't lift anything. Like I have to have people like carry my little bag that like I carried to like the starting line with like extra tools and, um, racing parts in it. Um, an extra change of clothes after the marathon. And, but yeah, I can't carry anything. So it's, yeah. Yeah. What weird. if you have some sort of uh, your wheelchair has some sort of issue? Is that is that a common? Has you had that happen in any of your races? Yes, I have flatted many times. I've flatted in Chicago before, New York before, London before. Is it just over, or do you have to, or do you like try to fix it? Yeah. So no, you try to fix it. We carry a spare tire and we carry a CO two. So we have to change it. Like we're not allowed. Whoa. to yeah. <laughs> so I have become a professional at changing tires because I felt like I had the freshman curse where one week I flatted six tires and tires are really expensive. They go from like 115 to like 200 a piece. So oh, and you had that like, many in one week of training? Yes. So it was like a very very expensive uh very expensive week. Um but yeah, so you have to, you have, that's one of the requirements. You just learn how to change a tire. And in Chicago, I flatted, but I was able to change it, kind of get back on course. And actually, uh, luckily my flat happened earlier on where I could, I caught the person and I was able to um, finish in first. So changing tires are. Gosh, that's got to be just uh, humiliating. It's like getting lapped when you were younger. But like someone had a flat tire, fixed it, and still beat you. Like that's just amazing. That's crazy. Um, yeah. That's that's. I'm I'm so impressed. I uh, I tore my Achilles in college track, and so I always thought like maybe when I'm done competing, I'll get into like the tough mutters and the m- marathons with people. And I I never had a chance to do it because my unfortunately my. Uh, leg is a bum at this point, but, um, that's unbelievable. So, and, and what's interesting too, is I would imagine that your marathon career could last longer than sprinting, right? Are you, are you still Mm -hmm. competing in the Paralympic sprinting stuff? I will be. Yeah, I'll be. That's, that would be my goal. Yeah. Um, you know, at trials, actually trials was yesterday for us. Um, so I would have, tried out for the 100, 400, 815, 5,000. Um, I made it in the marathon. I've qualified in the marathon. So. Congrats. Yeah. So now it's uh, it's uh, training and um, waiting for, you know, training until next year. But yeah, so, but marathons, you know, you could definitely hold that career a lot longer. So that was the best advice that my college. Yeah. Thanks coach. You were mad at him, but um <laughs> I'm I'm curious. So at one point you had, uh, you had wor- world records in multiple events, hundred meters, 400 meters, 800 meters, 1500 meters, 5,000 meters, Chicago marathon. Do you know how many 
records you still have, if any? Yep. I still have, um, I share the 5,000 record. I, um, have, um, a lot of them were actually broken over the, this summer. Um, I saw the New York course record. Um, I have the hundred meter world record. Um, I tied the 400 meter, uh, world record, but I just recently lost the eight and the 15. So I'm hoping to, to get that back. (laughs) I love that there are so many of them that you're like, "Mm, let me see. I have to remember (laughs) how many world records I have. It was just recently. (laughs) You got to keep track of those people nipping at your heels. I love Mm -hmm. that you and your sister both competed in the same Paralympic final in London, 2012. What are the odds of that? I mean, how many thousands of people are competing for both of you to be talented enough to be in the final? Right. I, you know, it's crazy. I kind of thought like, you know, like the Homs brothers, the gymnasts, they did it. Um, So I kind of felt like that. I was like, wow, this is really cool. It was, it was a, a really unique and like awesome experience because I can tell you how training went, but like, my sister gets it. You know what I mean? Like she totally and mentally has been through the same thing. So that was like the coolest. um, That's like the greatest bond. I think that we have, like she just understands that world and that like whole, you know, the, the pressure of it and um, good races and bad races. And um, so the question is who won. Who won? I I got the the medal. Um, she was so close to meddling in Rio. Um, she got four. She was just like a tenth of a second away from third. So, um, that was wasn't that a league was, of their own situation where you you know you you drop the ball at the home plate so that the younger sister can have her moment. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, world championships one year. Um. I didn't go to Dubai and she competed and, and came home with medals. And, um, yeah. <laughs> so you gave her her moment. You gave her, her did you ever, yeah. did you ever win the sp- or wear the spinners by the way that Ellen gave you for, for the, the marathon? I know they're still in my house. Um, I haven't worn them in public, but I definitely need to, um, you need to, those awesome. are hilarious. Yeah, those were so. Got to tell her you can only use them if there's a sponsorship involved, and see if she wants to, you know, throw right? some cash for those flat tires. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or if I could just be on her show on their regular. Uh, there you go. There you so. go. Um, what's next for you in let's say ten years, when maybe you might still be able to do marathons, but you start to slow down a little bit in the competition? What do you want to do with the rest of your life after being an athlete? Well, slowing down that yet. Um, I'm going to be me. I want to go to LA 28. So okay, that is my biggest goal to do events in LA um, and hopefully retire there because I have to do a home games. Um, yeah. Very important to me. Yep. So I want to stay healthy in doing that. And um, I'm doing, you know, I, I do a lot of speak engagements and I have my foundation. I've been working with the youth already. Um, I've worked with girls on the run. I've worked with the New York Roadrunners and developing their wheelchair racing program. 
I'm actually working on a film right now, a Paralympic film, um, talk about like the history of Paralympics and um, perception of disability of athletes, you know, from around the world and how they train for the Paralympics and what it means to them and what it means, you know, what means to their country as well. So um, I'm just, you know, I want to continue. I want to have my foundation really up and going and uh, I really want to do, yeah, there's so many wonderful projects. So I'm hoping to continue to, you know, be a voice and, and an advocate and hopefully still rock in the marathons and, um, you know, maybe have little minions of my own. <laughs> there you go. Okay. All right. And um, uh, yeah, so we'll see. So, well, I look favorite. forward to getting to see the coverage of, of LA. That would be a very dramatic and cool way to finish on, you know, a home games and, and coming out on top. Uh, of course, I'm sure we'll be following along, especially at ESPNW um, as you try to add to all those medals. I mean, it's unbelievable. 23 marathons and 17 Paralympic. That's just, that's crazy. I don't know. Do you have a whole room for all that stuff? <laughs> yes. You mean my closet? No, uh, you don't keep them all in the closet, do you? <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible. I come on. I'm going to come over to your house when this pandemic is over and I'm going to create a whole wall of, of metal magic. Okay. That's, that's a deal. I've got my Emmys on my bar cart right when you walk in the house. So it's like, wow. would you like a drink? Also humble brag. <laughs> I want like a coffee table. Cause I feel like that's a really cool way to like, Ooh, like a, a glass top and they're all underneath. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, I like that. Okay. All right. Now yeah. we're now we're getting somewhere. This whole closet thing. I, the humility is just silly to me. Uh, <laughs> if you've if you've got some cool trophy and Olympic medals and stuff, um, I say, I say it's a great conversation starter when people come over. <laughs> put them right in front. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm like, I tell my mom's like, oh man, I'm like, I need to become like a better liar and be like, come up with something cool that I've done, <laughs> but like. They're all in there. Very. I don't, think, I don't think you need to lie. I think I think you need to just change your approach, and then you'll be able to tell the truth about why they're perfectly arrayed across the walls in your home. Uh, before we let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. It's ten questions everybody gets. Number one. What's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Oh, it would be a Beyonce album for sure. Oh, okay, nice. Uh, how about number two? What habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Work ethics. Mm, yeah. Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Ooh, biggest failure? Hmm. I don't know. I like that answer. I get it a lot. And I think it's because successful people do a good job of kind of just pivoting <laughs> and moving on and being like, it wasn't a failure. It led to this, or this was great. Exactly. <sighs> All right. Well, maybe we'll come back to that. And we'll see if you can think of something. Number four, <laughs> have you ever been in a fist fight? No. Number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Oh, geez. Um, Alex Morgan, because I've always wanted, as a kid, I, I was obsessed with soccer. Oh, good one. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Embarrassed? Um, 
Oh, when you have like a dress malfunction at the Golden Globes, of course. Oh, no. (laughs) But it was all okay. People saved me. It was good. Well, and you got that fixed because you were on uh, Project Runway, right? Yes. And they made you a special dress that would have no malfunctions. Correct. But they, uh, that was a very interesting pinup as well. Yep. Yep. Exactly. What was interesting about it? Well, so they, they, it was such a short turnaround when they made all the gowns. So like you had like, um, they sent you like the revised and cleaned up dress, but during the time you had like pins still in (laughs) pins on TV, but I had to sit so like, steadily because all the pins could like fall out because they didn't have enough time. They only had 24 hours. Yeah. That's crazy. So everyone's dresses like had little, you know, I'm sure. And so we had a, uh, but it was, it was so much fun and it was amazing. And I love Nancy. So yeah, that was, it was a really pretty dress. It was fun, fun to see you on there. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, I'm probably like too, maybe as an athlete, like you're too um, picky, you know, you're maybe a little bit too anal sometimes, but I feel like that's what. About what specifically? Um, well, it could be like routine or getting enough, like, you know, certain hours of sleep or making sure you okay. get this. So a little bit of a control freak about your uh-huh, schedule. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Cool. Uh, number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Ooh, ah, ooh, that's a good one. All able-bodied people should practice being in a wheelchair just for 24 hours. Ooh, that's a good one. That would be really good. Yeah, for sure. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh, um, well, uh, sadly the, my first Boston was the year of the Boston bombing. So that was scary and and sad. Um, but you know, they came out stronger as a community. So that was a tough one. Were you racing earlier? Was it, you guys usually race first? Yes. Um, all the elites race first, but we were all on the way back home, like walking in the street. So you were done and, Mm -hmm. but still around. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really scary. Did you have to go take cover? Did you have any idea if it was like an isolated thing or. We didn't know what it was. We just like people heard it and they were like, what was that? Um, cause we were, you know, not on, we couldn't see it. So when we got back to the hotel room, we just turned on the TV to watch the other runners come in yeah. and that's what we call it. So, wow. That's yeah. That's crazy. Um, number 10, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Mm, strong, um, authentic and compassionate. Mm, good ones. Uh, and finally, who should I have on this podcast? Who's someone that's interesting or fun or cool or someone that I should talk to? Ooh. Does it have to be an athlete? Nope. Could be anyone. Ooh. I liked Nancy from Project Runway. Yeah. She was the first person to uh, create... Um, 
like fashion design for um, people with di- with disabilities. So her design's very versatile. Like anyone could wear it. Yeah, it was really cool that she incorporated that into her finale uh, mm-hmm. collection as well. It's really cool. Yeah. yeah, she would be very interesting. I I love that show, so I would be down for and, that. And she started her fashion career at like 64 or something like yeah. that. Yeah, she has a very so, inspiring tale of of d- deciding to to pivot later in life. Yeah, really so cool. Like, wow, Nancy. I told her, I was like, you're my inspiration because <laughs> like it, it, she started over. And I'm yeah. like pretty crazy people need to know that you can do that anything yes yeah uh well it was so awesome to talk to you and again uh speaking of inspiration i'm sure you're that for many people so looking forward to seeing everything you do in the upcoming olympics oh thank you that's what she said it's time once again for south bitch sessions where i rant about something that bothers me and i fix it this week zoom calls for everything guys you remember conference calls they were fine Meetings were held, conversations were had, decisions were made, all without needing to open up a Zoom, get harassed for not turning your camera on, making an excuse when you just didn't want to put on a bra and get out of bed for yet another Zoom that could have been a conference call. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because, yeah, okay, sure, yes, sometimes Zoom is the right choice for the meeting and Zoom has been a godsend during this quarantine time. You know, there's a PowerPoint presentation that everybody needs to watch or the topic requires a more intimate face-to-face chat. Maybe people are meeting for the first time. They're going to work together on a project, seeing each other face-to-face, putting a face with the voice helps bring the group together. Fine, I get it. But most of the time, a conference call would have been fine. So can we not with the Zoom every single time? Okay, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Use Zoom only when it's necessary. Just stick with a good old conference call when it's not. And even better... When you're just going to drone on and waste everyone's time, put it in a goddamn email, okay? Great. There. I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go into the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, and leave the dilemma in your review. Maybe I'll fix it on a future episode. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs>